This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I recently did a Google search for the term nappy-headed hose, and to my dismay, the phrase garnered 2,530,000 hits including a sponsored link from a site that is now selling T-shirts extolling the statement, I am a nappy-headed hoe. Other top-rated links included a Yahoo site responding to the reader question, what is a nappy-headed hoe, and at least 400 YouTube videos either in support of or calling for the resignation of Don Imus for saying the term nappy-headed hoes. I think you get my point. Suddenly, nappy-headed hoe is part of our verbal vernacular, and it seems that every news article, every television report, every blog, and every video site deems it entirely appropriate to both call for the resignation of the talk show host, as well as keep repeating ad nauseum this phrase that has outraged the nation and most of the talk show's advertisers. As offensive and repugnant as Imus's comments are, I can't help but wonder where both the listening public and the show's advertisers have been for the last 20 years during his previous broadcasts. While this particular phrase is not a first for Imus, this type of communication is not. As noble as Don's reported extracurricular activities might be, this is not Imus's first foray in using terminology that is racist, sexist, misogynistic, and language that is rude, crude, mean, spiteful, and nasty. Whether this is shtick or whether it is genuine makes no difference to this non-listener. used to be, in the not-so-distant past, that the news media either bleeped out provocative and offensive language, for example, the word fuck was always spelled out F, asterisk, exclamation point, question mark. Even the MTV Video Awards had a short time delay when broadcasting in an effort to avoid the embarrassment of airing celebrities cursing or same-sex kissing. Mel Gibson's anti-Semitic diatribe was censored, Michael Richards' racist nervous breakdown was edited for national television, and even Janet Jackson's so-called wardrobe malfunction was called as such rather than nipple alert or booby trap. Further, the pesky nipple at hand was always covered up in all of the subsequent coverage. So why is the phrase nappy-headed hose acceptable language to repeat? Why is this exact terminology the most repeated part of the discussion? Is this supposed to engage us? Is this supposed to outrage us further? Or as a culture, are we addicted to shtick or to shock or to both? What is the responsibility of the media in reporting and commenting accurately and explicitly? In the last few days, amid the grief and the agony of the massacre at Virginia Tech, I came upon an article in the L.A. Times with this title. Amid controversy, NBC ratings rise by showing Virginia Tech gunman images. 
The article goes on to report that while many viewers were repulsed by NBC's decision to broadcast videos and photos from the Virginia Tech gunman, the scoop translated into a ratings bonanza for the network and further relates how NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams, which led its Wednesday broadcast with rambling diatribes the killer recorded and mailed to the network, easily bested the competing newscasts on ABC and CBS. Does anyone really need to see this much information? Does the general public really need to be continually assaulted with the images and verbal manifesto, so to speak, of a madman preparing to go on a homicidal rampage? And is it possible that anyone with a heart really cares to know that NBC's ratings are up this week? NBC News said in a statement issued earlier yesterday that it gave careful consideration to distributing the material and that it would limit the usage of the videos. In the meantime, there seems to be widespread circulation of the photos and videos all over the mainstream media and over 7,000 videos on YouTube. 7,000 videos. And yet, among all of this virulent frothing of offensiveness, the government still wants to limit how many coffins we see of dead soldiers in an effort to protect the public from morbid imagery and unfortunate spectacle. It is a sobering time in this nation of ours. The images before us, the decisions being made, the state of our collective soul is at stake in a race for ratings in the guise of information and entertainment, power and control. Those that refute this actually suggest that the images and messages being thrust upon us now are helping prevent horrors like this from happening again. But I, for one, find it hard to believe that the relentless repetition of offensive messages and repugnant behavior is in any way prescriptive. I can't imagine how this could possibly assist in efforts to rise above our penchant for brutal violence and mass propaganda. One year after 9-11, artist Eric Fischel created a bronze sculpture in Rockefeller Center that was meant to commemorate those who jumped or fell to their deaths from the World Trade Center. Titled Tumbling Woman, it depicted a naked woman with her arms and legs flailing above her head as if in a backward somersault. As soon as it went on view, it drew complaints, and after only a few days on display, it was abruptly draped in cloth and then was surrounded by a curtain wall. The sculpture was not meant to hurt anybody, Fischl said in a statement. It was a sincere expression of deepest sympathy for the vulnerability of the human condition, both specifically towards the victims of September 11 and towards humanity in general. Nevertheless, the sculpture was removed, and to this day it has never been displayed again. All that remains publicly available is a poem by Fischl, which appeared on a plaque near the sculpture and read, We watched, disbelieving and helpless, on that savage day, people we love began falling, helpless, and in disbelief. Five and a half years later, we are still watching, and we are still disbelieving. The difference now is that we are not helpless. As designers and communicators, we can make a difference, and we must. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, and my guest today is Janet Froelich. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Janet Froelich is creative director of the New York Times Magazine and of T, the New York Times Style Magazine. Under her direction, 
The New York Times magazines have won more than 60 gold and silver awards from the Art Directors Club, the Society of Publication Designers, and the Society of Newspaper Designers, and have been finalists for SPD's Magazine of the Year every year since the award's inception. In 2004, Janet oversaw the repositioning and redesign of the Part 2 publications of the New York Times magazine, creating a new monthly style magazine devoted to men's and women's fashion, design, food, and travel. This publishing venture, T, the New York Times magazine, style magazine, has received wide acclaim in the fashion and design communities. And in 2006, she oversaw the design of the launch of Play, the New York Times sports magazine, and Key, the New York Times real estate magazine. Play was named one of the 10 best magazine launches of the year by Media Industry Newsletter, and in 2006, Janet was the recipient of the Art Directors Club Hall of Fame Award. Welcome, Janet. Thank you. So nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. As I was telling you before we went on the air, I'm a very, very big fan of your work, and it's really an honor to have you on our show. So one of the, the first things that I, I often like to ask my guests um, is, what is your first creative memory? What is the first memory you have of actually being creative? Oh, my, what a, an interesting <laughs> psychological question. Um, I Actually, I have a very visceral memory because I always drew when I was a child, a, a very visceral memory of, of, of drawing uh, girls, mostly in clothes that I, I liked. And so I, I would draw these little heads with little hairdos on them and dresses. And so I think that that's probably my most visceral memory of, of childhood is drawing is paper and pencils and crayons. How old were you when you were doing that? Oh, probably five. Wow. And were they paper dolls or just... Uh, I made everything. Yeah. Paper dolls and uh, uh, sculptures and uh, a lot of fashion mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to go into editorial design as opposed to any other specific discipline within design? Like a lot of things, I, I don't think I decided it. It, it, it sort of chose me. Uh-huh. I began um, as a painter, and I went to college and to graduate school in fine arts, and I spent 10 years in New York as a, as a fine artist. I was very much part of the art world. Um, and there, was, there came a moment when I recognized that that, choice didn't really suit me and that I had always loved more commercial applications of art but had found that it was denigrated in my school experience. In those really? days it was called commercial art uh-huh. and, it, and, it, and it wasn't um, looked upon with as much, um, uh, what, would, what word would I use, in as much favor as, as the fine arts. And um, uh, it took me a little while to come back and re- recognize that I loved the applied nature of, of artwork and communicating. At a certain point, I was friendly with a lot of women artists, and at a certain point, a group of women put together a publication and a collective called Heresies, a feminist publication on art and politics. And as my art career was sort of... Um, it was, it was uh, floundering a little bit. I became involved with these women putting out this publication, and I discovered that I loved the process of designing what other people were writing about and thinking about, it, that I loved typography and that I loved the collective approach, the, mm-hmm. the collaborative approach. And that set me off on magazines and mm-hmm. set me off looking for work in magazines. So in some ways it chose me. And now I understand that you got your first job at the Daily News I did. by answering an ad in the Times, which I, I find so wonderfully ironic. Is that true? It's very much, yeah. So, so you just saw an ad for... I uh, saw an ad for an art director. I applied, 
I had a, a fledgling portfolio of, of um, work that I, I now know was certainly not up to stuff, but I, I was interviewed by a wonderful man named Philip Ritzenberg, who was the, the design director of the Daily News, and he said, you don't have enough experience to take this job, but I think something... I like something I see here, so how about coming in on an entry-level position as a designer? And I did um, daily newspaper pages for the first year, um, 365 of them, and I loved it. I, I just read, yeah, loved it. In the research that we found on you, um, I, I remember reading about how you were very carefully pouring over every single element for hours and hours on end, um, and, I, and I, I sort of loved that vision of you doing that. Um, and one day, Philip Rittenberg said to me, Janet, you're going to do 365 of these a year, and right. if 10 come out, well, you're lucky. And I understood that I, I shouldn't take it quite so seriously. I take the whole thing seriously, but not every single tiny decision. Uh-huh. Now, did you get, I, only because I, I feel like I have to ask this for sort of symmetry purposes, did you get your, your job at the New York Times by answering an ad in the Daily News? <laughs> no. But I did get my job at the New York Times because the Daily News had decided to launch a magazine and use the New York Times' magazine as an inspiration and launch a Tonight paper, they called it, and Clay Felker came on board to, wow. um, to be the editorial director. And uh, we launched it, and they advertised it on television, and the people of the Times saw the work and called me. Wonderful. Because they liked the work that I've done. Wow. What was it like to work with Clay Felker? Oh, he was an amazing, amazing editor. He had such an eclectic mind uh, and such a magazine mind. And he was the first editor I had ever worked with who really, I think, under, understood um, the connection between design and editing and the audience. Yeah. Uh, Wonderful. Well, Janet, we have to take our first break, uh, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Creative Director Janet Froelich. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four hundred ones: Stock, Mortgage, Retirement, Wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Joshua Davis and his studio, the Department of Notation, start with design elements and then use computer programs to randomly generate artwork based on mathematical algorithms. Josh, tell us about your process. And it actually starts not digital at all. I actually just ink the stuff with just an ordinary rapidograph ink pen. And then I literally retrace what I've just drawn so that I can use them inside of the computer. And then I I can let these things run. I can let these things make decisions. I'm controlling the system. I'm saying you have to stay in this spot. You can only be these colors. You can't go any smaller than this. You can't go any bigger than this. So I'm constructing all of these boundaries, and the system acts randomly within those boundaries. I generally don't know where things are going to take me, so it's kind of like generating snowflakes. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Joshua Davis tells us about one of his recent projects. Mom, my tooth fell out. The coach says I can play shortstop. I can be a deciduous tree. You live for the first in your child's life. But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. 
CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. It has been said that to live is to choose, but to choose well, you must know who you are and what you stand for, where you want to go, and why you want to get there. On Reap What You Sow with host, performance management specialist, and executive coach, Alana Daly, achievement and success through expanding yourself and your life is available at the click of a mouse. Reap through redefining your goals. Educate your mind, your body, your conscious, and unconscious. Apply what you learn and plan, and it shall be success over and over again, and wealth result when you Reap regularly. Reap what you sow with Alana Daily, broadcast each Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Reap what you sow. Learn the rules of the game, then play better than anyone else. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.19 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Creative Director Janet Berlick. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And, Janet, we actually do have a caller on the line. We have Monica from New York City. Monica, thank you for calling Design Matters. Thank you. Hi, Janet. Hi, Monica. My question for you is, what has been the one experience in your life that stands out in your mind as as perhaps the most inspirational moment of your life? Wow. (laughs) That's a big question, Monica, from New York City. That's huge and and sort of difficult because I am a mother and I have two children, and uh, it's pretty inspirational to have couple of kids. Um, so maybe what I'll do is relate this more to, um, to what I do uh, for a living and, and to the magazines that I design. And I don't know if I would call it inspirational, but the most sort of pivotal experience, I think, in, in my life as I, I think of myself as a visual journalist is the experience of putting together an issue of the New York Times magazine in the week after 9-11. Uh, the way that the editors and the writers and the photographers and the photo editors and the designers came together in this city and all of us living within a couple of miles of the towers to frame an issue of the magazine that would deal with a, a profoundly painful and affecting experience that clearly not only the city but the country and the world was going through. And for me, I wouldn't call it inspirational, but I would say it was sort of um, the most remarkable for me as a designer, as an art director, and as a visual journalist. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling, Monica. Um, now, that cover, um, and I believe it was called The Remains of the Day cover, it um, is it true that the Tower of, Towers of Light Memorial originated from that cover? It did. I, it's, it's slightly more complex in that I, two groups of, of architects and designers had the idea close to simultaneously. For us, it happened, my editor then was Adam Moss, who was a a phenomenal editor. And two, three days after uh, 9-11, as we were trying to think of a cover image for the magazine, he was asking us to call artists and designers to ask them for ideas about memorials. 
the, the experience was way too fresh for everybody, and I was kind of embarrassed to make the calls because I knew that I would I would be refused by most people. They couldn't process anything yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, Ann Pasternak, who is the head of Creative Time in New York, pointed me in the direction of two artists who had studios on, I believe, the 92nd floor of the North Tower. They were Paul Mayota and Julian Laverdier, and they were partners in a in a uh, in, make, in making art. And they indeed had been working on ideas that they felt would translate as a, a notion for a memorial. And it was about shafts of light moving from ground zero up to the sky. And they drew it. And we found the idea really arresting. And we went looking for a photograph that we could use to digitally alter to create the experience of their drawings. And Fred Conrad, who was the New York Times photographer who, whose assignment it was to cover Ground Zero, had taken a remarkable photograph of the, uh, the night after 9-11 of the haze from the, um, from the collapse moving horizontally across the sky and all of the, left, the buildings that were left on the horizon under this, this incredibly, almost beautiful blue haze. And we took that to a digital studio and took the horizontal haze and moved it vertically into two beams of light. And this was supposed to be for the inside pages, but we realized that it would make an extraordinary cover, and it was our cover. And several people proposed that maybe this would be an appropriate memorial. At the same time, there are a couple of architects working, I believe, with the Municipal Art Society who had a similar idea, and they all worked together to make it happen a year later. Now, I I know that the cover won an award from the AIGA that following year, and one of the comments from the judges was this. uh, The cover played against the dailies. It was the only one that was vaguely hopeful. And I was wondering, was that was that something that you were thinking about? I mean, especially given what's happening right now with all the sort of gruesome coverage of the most heinous crimes against humanity, was that something that you really were thinking about in terms of it being something hopeful? Well, it was in the sense that, that the one thing to understand about the New York Times magazine is that it goes to bed or to press about 11 days before you get it wrapped in your newspaper. Mm. And... On on 9-11, we were doing, we had no choice but to be working on the September 23rd issue. So you have to sit and think about what people will be thinking on September 23rd, not what people are thinking on September 12th or 13th or 16th, which I think would have been the date of that Sunday. Right. And so all the images that felt appropriate at that moment, we knew you would see on Time and Newsweek and in the newspapers the the leftover pieces of the facade that um, uh, were standing with cranes around them and framed against the sky, uh, the pit, um, the, the firemen, the dust-covered remains. All of that we knew you would have seen ad infinitum by the 23rd of September. So we were looking for something that looked forward. And what's forward but hope? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it drove us there. It wasn't that we went for hope, but we went for trying to imagine people's states of mind mm-hmm. 15 days hence. Yeah, no, we needed that cover. That was the cover that we needed. Um, it was interesting. I heard Mirko Elix speak a couple of days ago, and he was talking about um, public art mm-hmm. um, coming out after uh, tragic events. And he was, uh, you know, aside from Eric Fischel's Tumbling Woman, which really never fully was out, so to speak. 
he he was talking about how there really hasn't been a lot of art that has come out um, since 9/11, and he was referring to Picasso and Guernica, and uh, you know how um, artists have. Um, in his mind, artists and designers have an obligation to inspire social change and to be commentators on social events. And I was wondering um, if you had an opinion on that in, in, in any way. That's a really hard question, a really interesting question. And I, uh, I don't know that I would have an enormous amount to contribute simply because of the fact that I think those issues are so complicated for us and I don't think we've processed them completely. Yeah. For Picasso and Guernica, the, the social issues were quite clear-cut. For us now, it has all been muddled by Bush's war yeah. in, in Iraq and um, by our own conflicted relationship to all of the events. I do think that the process at Ground Zero should turn up both memorials and architectural homages to the lives lost. And even that has been fraught with incredible difficulty in, in, in finding perfect pitch, in mm -hmm. finding, in figuring out, in navigating the shoals of, of people's emotions. Yeah, I think that to some degree, um, the people that I've spoken to about this seem to be waiting mm -hmm. for the monument to be built at Ground Zero in order to then add to the discussion and to the, to the dialogue. Um, we have another caller on the line. Sure. Um, we have Sophia. Sophia from New York, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that I love the monologue, Debbie. I think it was really, really appropriate in the type of week we're having in the world today. Thank you. It was a, it was a little bit off, off my usual. But it I, was I, very appropriate. Thank you for the mood. And um, but my question is for Janet. I, I, I want to. It sort of relates to you know having to think two weeks out. But just wanted to understand what you feel is the most challenging part of publication design. That like are weekly publications more stressful or difficult to put together than monthly publications? They are. After a while, you get used to the weekly deadline. The mm -hmm. issue for us at the Times is that we have a weekly deadline without a format that where things fit into boxes like a grid, like the news weeklies. In any case, even for the news weeklies like Time and Newsweek, they have to be conceptually fresh all the time. So it takes a while to, to get used to working on, on that kind of deadline. And it is lovely to have the grace of the monthly magazines. I love doing tea now because because there's more time and also because it's primarily visual material, whereas the hardest part of the New York Times magazine is taking non-visual ideas and making them visual. Mm, uh, that conceptual subjects and making them, making a cover out of it every week, uh, making pages that people will feel uh, graphically engaged with uh, every week when the material is not always primarily visual. Great, that's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Um, speaking of um, visual and, and visual impact, I don't know if you noticed um, that your co the cover that you did for Key with Karen Goldberg that featured that marvelous mm -hmm. key, um, the typographic key, was recently copied and has been quite substantially blogged about. Apparently, I think an automotive company uh, copied the... Um, the visual architecture and the key 
um, iconography almost exactly. Uh, we, we more than noticed, and it, it, it is with our lawyers. But I just want to mention in there that, that uh, over the past two years, uh, Rem Duplessis has been art directing the magazine. I hired him a couple of years ago as I uh, took on the, the tea project. Yes. And that was very much Rem's assignment, and he worked with Karen, and, and he deserves huge credit for that one. It's a gorgeous cover. It's a gorgeous it is cover. gorgeous. Um, well, I, I guess the, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's that, that awful um, slogan, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, yeah. but I think it's also quite unfortunate and, and kind of nasty when you plagiarize. Well, this, this wasn't just imitation. This was a total ripoff. Total ripoff, yeah, absolutely. Um, nothing subtle about it. Yeah. Well, um, we have to take another break, but um, Janet, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you go about creating your magazines, um, the, the special issues, and how you go about making these extraordinary issues, issue after issue. It's really quite a feat. Um, but I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Creative Director Janet Froelich. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Joshua Davis, who puts his designs through computer programs to create unusual abstract designs. Joshua, you've been creating some original poster art using design elements from BMW's new Z4 Coupe. Tell us about that. The thing that I'm doing for BMW is an addition of three colors. So there's green, there's blue, and there's orange. But every print's different. So print one is going to look totally different than print two. So this kind of goes more in tune with the kind of philosophy that I'm trying to create is is that everything can be an original piece of artwork. So what's next for you? Fashion would be the kind of next thing that I really kind of tackle, which is why can't every shirt or every handbag or whatever be unique? You know, so you're really generating something that's very specific to just that one object. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Joshua Davis talks about how he deals with his critics. Hi, I'm Sean Markey of Georgia Pacific, and I'm here to invite you to attend Fuse, Brand Identity and Package Design, this April in New York City. You might have heard the Bad Boys of Design segment on Design Matters, but now you can see it in person. The Fuse event is proud to announce their own version of the show, the Bad Boys of Brand Design, as the official kickoff to the 2007 event. Join me, along with other brand designers from Colgate-Palmolive, Starbucks, Johnson & Johnson, and Del Monte as we discuss how design can strategically build your brand. Plus, hear from design leaders from OXO, Procter & Gamble, Martha Stewart Living, Omnimedia, and more, who will give you actionable insights for fueling change and driving growth in your company. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www dot iirusa.com slash bipd or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. I'll see you April 16th to the 18th at Pier 60 at Chelsea Piers in New York City. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. 
We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Creative Director Janet Froelich. And Janet, we have another caller on the line. Calls are coming in fast and furious today. We have Richard, Richard on the phone. Richard, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, thank you. Um, I have a question about, um, well, first off, hello, Janet. Hello, Um, Richard. My question is about how much you keep up with trends in publishing and what's going on out there and how much you see yourself as the trendsetter versus how much you do what else everyone else is doing. (laughs) That's an interesting question. One never wants to do what everyone else is doing. Um, I keep up with a lot of magazines. I'm kind of a magazine junkie. I like the European magazines a lot because I think that um, there's a sort of less commercial way of using images and typography that drives them. And so I I tend to look at a lot of European publications. I also spend a lot of time in galleries and museums looking at art and photography because I I think that artists really are at the forefront of of a lot of um, creative ideas and that it really helps us in the magazines Mm-hmm. to um, have their visions be part of us. So we're always looking for interesting people to ask to do projects. We're looking for ways of engaging r- other creative people um, to do work with us. Uh, okay. as, far, as far as being innovative, I think everybody wants to be. I'd like to think that I am, but I'm not sure that I that we always are. We, we certainly put out that effort. It's really a, a critical to be on the front lines. All right, well, sometimes innovation is smaller than revolutionary changes, I guess. Oh, yeah, almost always. Yeah. All right, well, thank you very much. You're more thank than Thank you welcome. for calling, Richard. Um, well, interesting um, talking about innovation. I mean, I'm looking here at a stack on my desk of, of a pile of New York Times magazines and T magazines that go back several years, and, and every single one of them is beautiful. How, I mean, right now you're working on a, a number of magazines at any given time. How do you manage the different styles of each of the magazines, the content of each, um, and the overall quality from issue to issue to issue? I don't, I don't control all of that. I think I work with a remarkable group of people, and I think that I'm fortunate to have some incredibly gifted editors, editors who really are both both respect the work that the designers do, but are also often full partners in that. And the other thing is, is it's really important who you hire. And I always look for talented people who can not just be partners, but, but send me off in new directions. So I, I think I'm, I not only inspire them, but they inspire me. And, and over the years, I've, I've been quite fortunate in having hired some really gifted designers and, and thinkers, plus the the individual projects we work on, we frequently look for, uh, you mentioned Karen Goldberg. We've had Stefan Sagmeister do work for us. We will work with remarkable photographers. We've had um, Andreas Gursky's pictures in, in the magazine. Um, we, have, we work with the photographer Raymond Meyer on most of our tea covers, and he contributes enormously. So it's, 
it goes in according to the talent of the people that you hire to work with you, whether it's long range or for specific projects. Now, you mentioned before that you consider yourself to be a visual journalist. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that you have a particular role as a designer of the news? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For all the years that I was very hands-on with the Sunday magazine, and I'm less so now as Rim is doing it, um, I, I felt compelled to read the paper every day, front to back, to really un try to develop a deep understanding of the news so that when we would have conversations about stories that we would be running, I could contribute enormously uh, from the visual end and also often in, in terms of just how the story would be framed and what kinds of images we'd want to, to use, what the cover should say. Mm -hmm. um, and the journalist aspect of my job has been among the more satisfying. Just even thinking about trends and, and coming up with subjects for for the magazine, I suggested that about seven or eight years ago, the first time we did a design issue, that design was beginning to be a huge cultural force mm -hmm. in this country and that we should focus on it from the perspective not just of um, uh, home design, but really what is design as a cultural phenomenon. And, and we began doing special issues on design. Uh, I can't recall how long ago, but in the in the late 90s, before almost anybody else Some did. of them were there. <laughs> one of them I know is here, so the date, 1998 was yeah. the first. Yeah. About 10 years ago. Why do you think um, design has become such a huge cultural force now? I mean, do you, do you feel like there was a moment in time where it, it, it turned into that, or do you think it's been a more of a slow evolution? Do you think that the that the media has helped usher in that force? I think the media has. I'm sure that the computer has. I think everybody will say that's a no-brainer, that, that all of us are more conversant with typography. People never heard the word font before there was yeah. a computer. Nobody knew what a typeface was. Nobody understood a serif versus a sans serif. So many people across the country know all of that stuff so much more intimately. It's not necessarily better design, uh, but it is an awareness of design. And I think that the economy has a large, plays a large role in this, that people with discretionary income uh, start to see design of, of furniture and um, clothing as something to think about, to spend money on in a different way, to, um, to question uh, and, uh, and to want to know more about. And... Um what has kept you at the New York Times for as long as you've been there? It's a great question because clearly I've had a lot of moments in which people have, have tried to lure me away and, and I've thought about leaving for other magazines and I've thought about leaving for um, catalog companies and design studios and so on. I mean, not, you know, with enormous regularity, but every once in a while job offers come in. And I find the Times addictive. Yeah, it's a really addictive place, and every time I've tried to leave, I found it kind of impossible because I would weigh things. I would I would weigh the quality of the news that I get to work with, the quality of the photography, and the quality of the audience, and everything else would always come up short. Mm -hmm. and so it's a very very seriously addictive place. And do you still read most of the papers, the dailies, the weekends, cover to cover? I do. Pretty hard on Sunday. I, well, I get you know half That's the paper. Exactly, yeah, and you're creating it so exactly, hard, yeah. and I have a lot of it in advance. But uh, no, I love it. I mean, now with my children grown, my husband and I are pretty early risers, and and a good deal of the morning is spent sitting and reading the paper. Do you do the crossword puzzle? I don't. 
I'm not a puzzler. No. No. Um, have you ever thought about writing into the ethicist? I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the ethicist because even my, my daughter just reads it um, uh, voraciously. Everybody loves the ethicist. Well, as much as I love the ethicist, I also love the artwork that accompanies that column week after week. I mean, the, the, it's, Chris Daphne yeah, and it's absolutely yeah. fabulous. Um, we have another caller on the line. We have Isabel. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Sure. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Janet. Hi. Working at the New York Times and doing what you do, for me, it sounds like an absolute dream job and dream experience. I know I, for one, really look forward to the magazines on Sunday. I, I grab it before my husband does, and he, it, it's not available to him until I'm absolutely finished. But since you said it's an addictive place, I'll assume that it's a dream job for you, too. And I really want to know, philosophically speaking, when one is actually living the dream, is it okay to be content and do what you do each day, or do you feel like you have to continually strive and reach for more? Like, can you be satisfied? I, well, I'm, I'm never satisfied, and I, um, I I go through a lot of ups and downs. I go through a lot of periods where I think uh, that I'm stagnating, and I don't know where I'm going to find the next idea, and I've gone through a lot of times where I can't solve a problem, and it just kills me. And every time we have a new project, you, you kind of look around to see if you can design it better than anybody else has done it before and you always come up short. So uh, I was telling Debbie uh, Millman as I walked in the studio this, this afternoon that, that I wasn't sure this was going to be a great day for me to be talking because I have had a hard week. Um, so yeah, there are always these sort of crises, moments of, of self-doubt, uh, moments when you're not sure you're, you're continuing to produce the best work. Um, that, that comes absolutely with the territory. I just I love the the New York Times as an institution. I'm a real fan. I think I meant that more than anything. Oh, okay. Well, thank you, Janet. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Bye. And Janet, right before the break, we'll take our next caller. We have Prescott. Prescott from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Janet. Hey, Prescott. How are you? Um, Good. First, I I just have to say that the the Science Magazine has been one of my design bibles since I was about 16 and I, I first started taking graphic design course and uh, I've kept it close ever since. And when I was in uh, London for grad school, or outside of London, um, I discovered the, the Times magazine over there for just the, you know, the Times of London, and which of course is a cheap knockoff. And a friend of mine kind of asked me why. He's like, what, what's so special about the New York Times? And I, my reply, uh, the only one I had was, well, it's just New York. So I was just wondering, how do, you, how do you make it relevant to the city, or, or how are you inspired by the city? Well, the, the, the Times Magazine doesn't see itself as a, as a New York-based publication. That may be um, a, little, a little bit of a fantasy, but uh, we have a national circulation, and, and it's a little bit of an international one, but mostly a national circulation. So it doesn't run that many New York stories, actually. So I think the aspect of it being New York is just that, you know, as a... As a New Yorker and a person who sort of uh, has lived most of her life here, I'm, I'm also a uh, you know a, a fan of this city, and I do believe that it's sort of a culturally very sophisticated place, and it attracts remarkable people, and um, and that informs you as you as you design. I I'm a fan also though of um, of the London Sunday Times. I think they do run some terrific photography. Uh, and they are a little bit more understated in terms of the kind of design here, that they here. do. Well, oh. us New Yorkers always have to be sort of territorial about thinking what we have is best, I think. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, Prescott, did I cut you off? 
Uh, no, I was, just, I was just agreeing with you. So. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I, I just love the city, and uh, I try to use the, the inspirations for for my designs. So I, it just feels kind of New Yorkish when I when I read the magazine. So. Well, I, I think that's a good compliment. <laughs> Thank you so much for calling, Prescott. Enjoy Take the uh, blue sky in New York City, the first in a many, many days that we're seeing a blue sky. Um, well, Janet, we have to take our, our last break, but we do have uh, another segment coming up after the break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is a very popular creative director, Janet Froland. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Joshua Davis, who puts his designs through computer programs to create unusual abstract designs. Joshua, some of your critics say that you're not the creator of the finished artwork. The computer is. What would you say to that? You know, this is truly something that I love. Um making the things that I do and it's it's this thing that's inside of me to make things and whether the public likes it or not totally doesn't matter and I think at the end of the day the the most important thing work like hell you know I never stop working whether I fail whether I succeed I'm always working like hell and uh, and that's what I do day in and day out You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Creative Director Janet Brolick. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are still open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. Janet, I want to talk to you a bit about the origin of tea, Mm -hmm. uh, the New York Times Style Magazine. Uh, How did they come to be? 
for a long time, the Times published a, a group of, of um, publications they called Part 2 publications, which were established, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, in, uh, as, a, as advertising vehicles. So fashion and home mm-hmm. and, and And also the sophisticated traveler was mm-hmm. part of that. And each one sort of covered a different part of the world of style, the home design, and uh, there was one called uh, Entertaining, I think. About... Three years ago, the editors decided that it would be smart to take these these advertising vehicles and pull them all together under the direction of one um, style editor who had a really solid vision for style and really give them a, a vision, a thrust, a, um, an identity. And they hired Stefano Tonki, who uh, was then the men's fashion editor of Esquire. But he is a remarkably cultured, um, stylish, and style-involved in, uh, man who came on board to edit uh, the magazines and to focus them. And um, I work with him as a partner in, in figuring out how to redirect the publications graphically. The publishing schedule is a little odd. It doesn't come out on any regular schedule, but by the old uh, Part 2 schedules, which are directed more by when there are, there's a lot of advertising. So we don't come out for three or four months in the dead of the summer, and we do come out heavily in, in uh, September and October as, as the cultural world and the style world gets rolling. Um, the magazines still each are separate. They're called T, and Stefano and I came up with that name in a kind of... Um, uh, brainstorming s- session um, one afternoon when we were looking at Italian magazines and it, uh, one called D um, and, and a W, which is the uh, Fairchild publication. And um, I thought that we could use the old English letter form. Um, the font is called Fractor mm-hmm. um, from our masthead logo and make that into a nice, big, chunky form. It was I sent it to Matthew Carter, and I worked very closely with him, and he and I developed this. Uh, we called it the tea on steroids. We fattened it up, and we took it until it became too fat and then brought it back down to where you see it now. And each issue of tea focuses on a different aspect of style um, or the, the world of fashion, but we wanted to make them all feel like a family. So I came up with this very powerful graphic notion of um, either very, very tight headshot of a, um, of, a, of a person in the style world or a person um, in the entertainment world, or else a very tight image of, a, of a, an object in design or, uh, or in food. And so there's, there's a graphic... Um, uh, thread that follows through all of them, and they have no cover line. So now they have one small cover line at the bottom. That is, is a tips our hat to the fact that we don't sell on the newsstands, and we don't need to cover ourselves with the entire table of contents. Right. So and numbers, get, yeah, 563 ideas for hats. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think you know we're very lucky in that we don't have to do that. But I also think it harkens back to old-fashioned days of like show and right. um, and and holiday and the publications in the 60s that were able to do that with um, a, a stylish panache that you can't do now. Um, and, uh, and then we set about just sort of formatting the inside of it in a way that would relate to the New York Times magazine that would have the same series of fonts but would use them in a different way, in a lighter way, in a more stylish way. And we developed the, um, the heavy stymie font that we had in the magazine in a much lighter version for T so that it would relate very, you, you know you're still in the New York Times magazine. We kept all the borders. We kept the body copy the same. 
but we altered the flavor of the typography to lighten it up and to make it more stylish. I wanted there to be a, still a strong relationship between them. They're sister publications, mm-hmm. and they needed to feel that they were Timesian. Right. And that they were, we are still in the land of journalism here, but, but we move slightly to to the left can we, can I say yes uh, not politically but um, but uh, stylishly now what about key and play how did those come to be well both of them are the brainchild of Jerry Marzarati the editor of, of the New York Times magazine and Jerry is is man with a million fabulous ideas and when he had, feels that one of them is going to work he, he he has breathtaking confidence and he thought that play would be a way to engage mostly male readers, um, get some advertising, and using sports as a subject, but treating it in the way that the Times treats subjects, which is in-depth, um, uh, with a slightly different vision, with a more stylish vision, with deeper writing, with um, a more um, long-form journalism approach. And play comes out four times a year now. The hope is that it will come out more frequently as they get advertising. Key, I think, is much more playing to the to the real estate boom, which we now all feel may not any longer be a boom. And we come out with Key twice a year. Um, and again, I think that one is very much about advertising. Uh, it, it's journalistically a, a very much a Times product in that uh, um, in that all of the journalism is is by Times writers or, or writers hired by the Times, um, and it comes from a very journalistic approach. But the intent of the publication is to get real estate advertising. Now, um, one of the things that you just said about um, the cover and not needing to have, you know, 586 mm-hmm. reasons to buy sneakers, um, I read that you said that the cover's function is to pull readers inside. And I was wondering if you don't have... Um, certain um, restrictions with copy lines and messaging that you need to have on the cover, how do you engage the reader and pull them inside with the work that you do? Well, by an arresting image that itself maybe either poses a question or gives you a sense of longing um, or makes you think twice about something. We come wrapped in a newspaper that's full of words, and it's uh, used to be very gray. It's now got a lot of color as well, but I don't feel that we are clamoring that that in order to clamor for attention from the Sunday New York Times reader we need to add more words to the cover in general I think fewer headlines on our magazine covers will grab the reader I know that that's not true on the newsstand but Mm -hmm. I think on your coffee table it is true yeah well Janet unfortunately um, time to uh, wrap up the show but you know, one of the questions that one of our callers um, asked was about, you know, the New Yorkiness of uh, the New York Times and the New York Times magazines and tea. And in as much as they might be um, absolutely wonderful for everybody to read, I think they do make New York more beautiful. And I do want to thank you for doing these this extraordinary work for all the time that you have at the New York Times. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to also give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. And I'd also like to ask my listeners this week to please go to a website that I think is extremely important and extremely inspiring. It's a design uh, blog, a design site called Design Can Change. And it's all about how designers can make a difference through design. The address is www.designcanchange.org. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Next week we have a very special show. It's our first all-music show 
which will be curated by the design firm Surface to Air. I'd also like to thank Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and you, the listener. Thank you for listening. Please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.